Well, as many of you already know, I did spend a couple years living in Alaska. And Alaska will always be a special place in my heart because it's where I came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God truly took me to the top of the world and separated me from uh, friends and family and uh, unveiled the truth of the gospel. And it is there where I professed faith in Christ. It's there where I was baptized as a believer. So it would always be special uh, place. Has anyone ever had the chance to visit Alaska? Raise your hand. Loud and proud. Come on, get those hands up. We got a number of people. Yeah, it's absolutely stunning. Just, it's, it's glorious. The, the mountains do cry out and give testimony of God's creation. And if you haven't been to Alaska, perhaps you've been to Yosemite here in California. I'm sure maybe a little bit closer. So uh, there's probably a lot more people have been to Yosemite. And I would basically describe, although my wife would disagree with me, um, uh, Alaska being a collection of a bunch of Yosemites. Just majestic, glorious views. And one of the things that you can do to um, really g- gain a great experience of, of a view of creation is to climb a mountain. And there are many different mountains that you can go up in the trails and climb. Has anyone ever had that experience, to hike up a really tall mountain? Let me see. I know we've got some hikers in our church. All right, even more hands going up. So, yes, it's, um, it's a, an incredible experience. But it comes at a cost, doesn't it? You have to have the right things with you. You, you have to be prepared for it. You have to uh, bring enough food and water. You have to wear the right shoes and the right clothing. And depending on the size of the mountain, it might take you a few hours to climb it, or it could actually even be a few days. But preparations do have to be made. You may even need to bring a good walking stick uh, to clear out things in your path, a good machete, if you know what I'm saying. And maybe to clear some brush that, that comes your way. Sometimes you have to even bring a gun. Dare I say, a gun! Yeah! Open carry in California. No, I'm just kidding. But you, you, you may have to bring a gun depending on the wildlife that you could potentially encounter. Back cap, uh, back caps. <laughs> Backpacks and camping gear are common accessories as modern conveniences are left behind. There are no bathrooms. Well, there's one big one. Uh, let's just put it that way. You, you have to, and you'll want to make sure you do this. You need to bring TP with you. Okay, you bring toilet paper um, because there are no indoor uh, plumbing opportunities. There's no kitchens. There's no microwaves. There's no hot running water to wash your hands underneath. There are many sacrifices that need to be made. And I have yet to speak of the effort that comes when you have to physically climb the mountain. Okay? It takes effort. Hours of long hiking trails that can, in some areas, get very steep. You may have to bring rope with you so that you can tie off with other people and work together as a team, pulling each other up the mountain at certain points. You may encounter different obstacles, Large trees can, can fall into the, the trails. You have to go around them or do something to, to 
past those obstacles. You can encounter poisonous snakes, poison ivy, poison oak. There's all kinds of poisonous things. Your leg muscles, after you're climbing for a while, you know what happens? And those that have experienced, you start to get a, just a deep burn in your muscles. And you're carrying that additional weight of your backpack. And it can get very tiring. Not only that, but then as the altitude gets higher and higher, what happens to your breathing? It gets more and more labored, more and more strained. And you know what happens? There are even points in time where, for some, doubt begins to creep into your mind about why in the world am I doing this? This is hard. But then it happens. It happens. You reach the top. You reach the summit. Right? And you're, you're able to see the glorious view from, that, that you could not see from when you were down below. It provided a whole new perspective. You're able to put your backpack down. You're able to rest with your friends. You're able to, uh, to, to, to feel accomplished about what took place. And the glorious view of what you behold makes it all worthwhile. And I share this as an illustration because it really reflects the journey that the disciples have made with the Lord Jesus Christ through the Gospel of Mark and where we're at. They have walked many ministry miles with the Lord. They have seen the need to be prepared. They have learned about the great sacrifices that come and the modern conveniences that come at the expense of ministry. And in Mark 8, after Peter makes a clear confession, letting us know that the disciples finally see Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Lord went on to explain the high cost of following him. And we got a chance the last couple Sundays to look at that cost. We looked at our Savior's cost and how he led by example by paying the highest cost. And we looked at our personal cost when it comes to being one of his disciples. And now in Mark 9, Jesus is going to allow Peter, James, and John to witness his transfiguration. He's going to provide a glimpse of God's glory, which serves as our sermon title, that's radically going to impact them in the future. It would allow them to see that the climb and the cost of being a disciple is more than worth it. He is going to bring them to a top of a mountain. He is going to reveal his glory. He is going to see glorified saints. Peter is. Peter, James, and John. All of them will. And it's going to impact them tremendously. And we'll also affirm and authenticate the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and God's plan for the suffering Messiah. And the transfiguration is a timely word for believers because it helps you and I stay focused on living for what's most important. Living for God's glory. Living for his doxological purpose. It's why we were created. How can Christ's transfiguration encourage you and I to see Christ more clearly? How can it challenge you and I to live out 
the remainder of our days to, to live passionately for his glory. In what ways can it motivate our hearts during our climb of discipleship on earth and help us to see that the cost of following him is so worth it in the end? Let's find out the answer. Let's study our passage together. I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 9 if you're not there already. And here's what it says in Mark 9, verses 2 through 8, from the New American Standard. It reads as follows. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer. For they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once, they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Well, this, friends, is a massive text. And it's so amazing just to see how it comes at this point in time in the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to have an opportunity to talk more about that. But as your outline indicates, we're going to look at three principles. And it's possible that there's more in here, but this is how I wanted to to outline it and, and help us see what I believe the Lord would have us see. Three principles from the Lord's transfiguration so that you see Christ more clearly and live passionately for his glory. Now, the first principle is pretty straightforward, and it's this. Be prepared for God's glory. If there's a singular driving purpose for Jesus sharing this experience with Peter, James, and John, it is so that they would understand God's plan and will for the Messiah to be glorified. He's making sure that they're prepared accordingly. The disciples were struggling to understand that the Messiah would have to suffer and be put to death. And we saw this and studied this. It's evident in Mark 8.32 where Peter had such an aversion, such a response that he does what? He attempts to rebuke the Lord. He says it can't be. It can't be. And this invited the counter rebuke from the Lord, a strong one. That, that the Lord Jesus Christ said, Peter, you're being like Satan. Get behind me. Out of my sight, Satan. And we see additional evidence of their struggle with the Messiah's death in our context today. We didn't read down, but next week's passage, we'll have a chance to study it. Even after the transfiguration takes place, Jesus will order them not to share what they've experienced with anyone until the Son of Man has been risen from the dead. Verse 10 says, They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. And so here here we see it. And we we talked about this before as well, that 
Jesus is basically connecting the Old Testament dots for them that they, that, that, that they don't see. They, they struggle to see um, how the Son of Man, the exalted figure that we, we took a look at, and Jesus, safe, our, our, our favorite self-designating term, right? The exalted figure of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, how that was the same person as the suffering Messiah in Isaiah 53. So they didn't have a, a, a full canon like we have, a full New Testament and Old Testament canon. And, and so Jesus is connecting the dots for them in a progressive manner, which they will eventually understand after his death and resurrection. In the meantime, Jesus affirms and authenticates his authority by allowing them to witness the transfiguration so that they'll understand the Father's impending will for the Messiah, which is to go to the cross, to suffer and to die, and to pay the penalty that mankind owes for sin. J.C. Ryle says the transfiguration was meant to teach the disciples that though their Lord was lowly and poor in appearance now, he would one day appear in such royal majesty as became the Son of God. It was meant to teach those who, when their master came the second time, his saints, like Moses and Elijah, would appear with him. It was meant to remind them that though reviled and persecuted now, because they belonged to Christ, they would one day be clothed with honor and be partakers of their master's glory. End quote. Is that not beautiful? Is that not encouraging to our hearts? And I think that if we were to summarize what Ryle just spoke in that quote, we could summarize it in a, a simple statement that bears principle number one. And that is that they would be prepared for God's glory. So how did it happen? Let's read verses 2 through 4 again. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter... James and John, and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. First thing that needs to be noted is that this is a real-life experience. This isn't a dream, as some theologians have, have even proposed this happened in real time, in a real place, with real people, with the real God of Scripture, the only God on this planet, the God of Scripture. Six days after Peter's confession took place, this is what transpired on the seventh day. And theologians do agree on one thing accurately, and that is that this account parallels the revelation of God in, in the Old Testament on Mount Sinai, which ironically also involved Moses. Exodus 24, verses 16 through 18 say this, and you can turn there if you want to see it firsthand. Exodus 24, 16 through 18 says, The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Verse 18, 
Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This event, you know, is a a defining uh, event for the nation of Israel. And so the parallel here should be noted. Another parallel is that both events took place on a high mountain. Moses was set up to meet with God on Mount Sinai, and the transfiguration took place most likely on Mount Hermon. Now this is debated. If you have an opportunity to visit uh, the Holy Lands, though there will be a tradition, and I'm preparing uh, you when you go over, um, you might even be able to challenge the tradition because I believe that it was Mount Hermon, but if you get over to the Holy Lands, a lot of people will encourage you that Mount Tabor was where it took place. And there's three reasons why Mount Tabor probably is, um, why I believe it's, it's not where the transfiguration took place. The first is this. Scripture is very clear, even in the Greek, that this was a high mountain. Mount Tabor is actually a, a dome-shaped mountain. It's not very high at all. Uh, another reason is that um, um, Mount Tabor was also very populated at this time. And so you can, Jesus wanted uh, isolation when it came to this, right? He took them away by himself. And so um, it, it, it's, it's highly unlikely that Jesus would have had them go to a place that was densely populated. And we know this according to Josephus, that during the time of Christ, that it wouldn't have lent itself. Second, there was a great distance between Caesarea Philippi, where, P- where Peter and the disciples just were, and so it's very unlikely that they would have had the time to journey all the way in just a matter of six days. So anyway, those are just some facts that hang your hat on. Here's some other convincing facts as it relates to Mount Hermon being a, a, a good choice. It was a very tall mountain, almost 10,000 feet. How many feet in a mile? Just over 5,200, right? So you double that up. It's, it, Mount Hermon was almost two miles high. And so it was the tallest mountain in the region. And it was also within uh, striking distance for in Caesarea Philippi from where Peter made the confession. And it was here where, according to verse 2, Jesus was transfigured before them. Now, this is a really cool word in the Greek, metamorpheo. And it's where we get our English word metamorphosis. And so it's a word that can also mean changed or transformed. And we need to make sure that we understand this term correctly due to serious theological implications related to the doctrine of immutability. You'll recall the doctrine of immutability teaches that God does not mutate or change. And there's a, a realm of theology that has developed in the, in the recent decades called open theism that, that basically allows an a la carte God and, and for people to make God out to be whatever they want him to be. Right? So it's, it's important to understand what was taking place here. God is infinitely perfect in all of his attributes, and that will never change. Amen? Amen. And so what then is happening here? Jesus, in his incarnate state, 
conceals or veils the glory of his deity and his humanity. That's, that's what, that is how Jesus appears every day. That is why in Isaiah 53 said that people could look at him and not see anything that was marvelous or stunning about him because his deity was veiled in his humanity. And it's important that we understand this because if you don't, you're vulnerable to becoming like a Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, witnesses who, who teach that Jesus was merely a man. And we've also seen in our recent studies that this was commonplace even during this time as Jesus walked on the earth, many people saw the man, but they missed the Messiah, right? We don't want that to happen. What was the result when Jesus was transformed? Or a more theologically accurate way to say it is, what was the result when Jesus' deity was unveiled? James Edwards expresses it this way. It does not signify a change in Jesus' nature, but rather an outward visible transformation of his appearance to accord with his nature. That is a very solid summary statement of what takes place in in, in the transfiguration. It does not signify a change in his nature, but rather an outward visible transformation of his appearance to accord with his nature. R. Kent Hughes provides an illustration for us. When as a young father, I used to light the fireworks on the 4th of July for my family, there were two views I enjoyed. There were the fireworks themselves pouring forth a fountain of sparks And there were the faces of my children, eyes wide with delight and expectancy, their skin reflecting the changing hues of the fireworks. I like that even better. I can still see it today. This is what Jesus saw, his glory illuminating the faces of his awestruck inner ring of disciples, his very image dancing in their wide eyes, end quote. As he was transfigured, he, it, it, it unveiled, it, it, it allowed them to see deity, it allowed them to see the Messiah behind the man. Matthew in his parallel gospel account in Matthew 17 describes it this way when speaking of Christ. His face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. Luke in his account says the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. Mark's account is even more illustrative when he records his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. What was Mark saying? What what is it ultimately saying in the original language that his, his appearance became literally like lightning? Mark wanted to make sure that his readers understood what was taking place and that there was no way that this experience could be created on a human level. This wasn't a Clorox bleach moment. This was radiance. This was a stunning view of God's glory and radiance on display as as his humanity was pulled back and they were able to see the Messiah. It was awesome. Because God is awesome. It was radiant. It was of divine disclosure as Jesus allowed them to see who he really was. 
And it would be this Messiah who would go to the cross, who would suffer and die and pay the price for the sins of mankind. The transfiguration will serve as a, a deposit in their thinking that is going to register at a later point. This is a deposit in their thinking. Why? Because right now they're missing it. Right now they don't understand it. Right now we have Peter who's rebuking him for it. They needed to see it. And so the Lord is helping them be prepared for the glory of the cross and the Lord's resurrection. And it will later help them see that God himself is the glorified Messiah through his very own son. And this is why the account also includes them talking to, to Moses, or Jesus talking to Moses. Moses, who had lived uh, 1400, approximately 1,400 years earlier, and Elijah, who you'll recall in 2 Kings chapter 2, was raptured to heaven, and that took place about 900 years earlier. Verse 4 says, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. You might be curious. What were they talking about? Any guesses? We don't know from Mark's account, but according to Luke 9.31, we do have an answer. And it says they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They're speaking about his impending death and suffering as the Messiah and him going to the cross. In all of heaven, right? The things which angels long to look into. It, it, it's, it, this is the moment. This is the climactic moment of history that's coming. And there's a conversation that's taking place. And both Moses and Elijah, we know this. Moses representing the law. Elijah representing the prophets. Respectively, both of which foretold of Christ's death. So again, Jesus is doing this, and he's so gracious to teach them. He's connecting the dots for them. He's helping them be prepared for how God is going to put his glory on display through the death of his son, the Messiah. And believers today can also appreciate this principle. For those of us who have trusted completely in Christ, for those of us who have had the gospel unveiled, and we've seen the holiness of God. We've understood the holiness of God. We haven't seen it fully. Oh, but we will. This is a reminder, just even in the pa passage today. The gospel has been unveiled. We've seen our need, our sinfulness, our need for, to be saved. And if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, let me just say this. This is a great encouragement. You are prepared to see him in his glory. You're prepared. You are prepared through the blood of Christ to see him in his glory. He did that work in our hearts. But here's the deal. If you're not in Christ, you are not prepared. Let me say it again. And, and if you're not in Christ, you are not prepared. You cannot see his glory. You will be cast out of his presence. And you need to be prepared for it. 
Trust in Christ today. Trust in Christ today. If you're somebody who can hear my voice and you're, you're not sure or spiritually you've been on the fence and I have Christian friends, but I also like hanging out with these people and ba-da-da-da-da and I'm just like got one foot in the church, one foot in the world. That's the worst place you can be, by the way. Come to Christ. Be all in for Christ. Go all in. Make your life count for Christ. And that's the beauty of it. Not only will you be able to see and behold Christ's glory when he returns, but from this point on in your life, and the, the point of salvation, we as believers in this church will testify that you get to live for God's glory. And his standard has to be met. And you cannot do it on your own. It, it, it involves a perfect, sinless righteousness that you can never create on your own. You have to come to him on his terms. And if you want to hear a message that I just recently preached on the high cost of following him, you can go back the last couple Sundays and I'll spend additional time. We have to come and, and we have to come to God on his terms and yield to his standard. And this is why he sent his son to die for you and I. Will you believe? Do you completely trust in Christ alone? If you do, not only will you be able to see his glory, but you'll be able to live for his glory. Well, there's two more principles that our passage reveals as we're considering three of them from the Lord's transfiguration so that we see Christ clearly and live passionately for his glory. The first one was straightforward. Be prepared for God's glory. The second is this. Be motivated by God's glory. And notice Peter's response to God's glory in verses 5 and 6. And you'll see in your outline, I've, I've labeled these as Peter's proactive response and his paralyzing response. Let's start with Peter's proactive response. Look at verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. First of all, the question needs to be asked, if Peter had never met Moses or Elijah, how in the world does he know who they are? Think about that for a moment. How does he know who they are? He didn't see him on Facebook. He didn't see him on Pinterest, Instagram, right? But, but he knows who they are, and, and none of the gospel accounts record a formal introduction. And I believe that's for a purpose. The unveiled, glorified state of Jesus allowed them to see and understand who they were. And I think we have a, a text that kind of helps us understand that. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. And so this is really encouraging, especially for those of you who are bad with names, which make you desire uh, the, the Lord's presence even more, Right? Um, not only will you be able to recall people you have met before, you're going to be able to identify the people you've never met. Now, that's pretty cool. All right, pretty good, pretty good deal we get in glory as it relates to names. But Peter's response is, is telling. 
is telling of someone who's, who's witnessed and who has been motivated by God's glory. And it compels his heart to verbally express. He, he doesn't know what to say, but he says, what does he say? It's good to be here. You know, we don't have the tone in there, but I guarantee you it was something like I just sounded. I got to be here. How you doing this morning? Like, you know, this morning, somebody, I'm doing fine. How you doing, man? How was your week? Yeah, good to be here. Good to see you. No, it was, it's good to be here. He's blown away. His eyes are like this. He's, he, he, he can't believe it. He's radically impacted. But it doesn't stop there. And oh, that your heart would be captured and motivated by his glory and that you would see this. Because it's going to be what you want when you're there, when you see this. You're going to want to give something. You're going to want to ascribe something. You're going to want to do something to express how worthy and how majestic he is. And I'm telling you, church, this is our hearts have to be motivated and captivated by that glory. They have to, to get it. And Peter's is a prime example. And I'm telling you, and we can look at Peter's response, and we're going to talk about it in a moment, because some people consider it a foolish response, like, why didn't he offer to build three tabernacles? We're going to talk about that. There was actually a reason for it. But how would you have responded? I can tell you this much. You would want to do something. And the Lord Jesus Christ right now on this earth gives us an opportunity to do something. He's giving us an opportunity as we walk in discipleship to fashion crowns so that like the 24 elders in Revelation 4, 10, when, they, when they're casting their crowns, we'll have something that will ascribe glory to his name. And a good friend of mine, Pastor Kurt Gebhardt, who's disciple both Adam and I, said we won't want to cast poly pocket crowns. We won't want to throw and ascribe small crowns. We want to we give him great glory. Great glory. So Peter says, Jesus, says to Jesus, Master, Rabbi, let us make three tabernacles, one for each of you guys. If you have an ESV, it says tents here. And in the Greek, it can actually, it's, it's a dwelling. Okay, it can mean one of those three terms. They're all good translation. A dwelling, a tabernacle, a tent. We don't think of tents being of anything significant. But there were tents, even during this time period, the tent of meeting, for example, it wasn't a, uh, a little spring-up pop tent that you get from Walmart. They, they, they had a lot more ornate detail and the, 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 the material. It was, it was truly remarkable. But it's, it, it can also mean a dwelling. But we need to see his, his proactive response here. And I think even before my study, I'll just confess this. When I saw Peter say, oh, you know, respond this way, I thought, you know, it's kind of, you're like, this is a corny response. Or he is like, I was totally, I'm judging Peter for his response. Like, gosh, couldn't you think of 
something better to do, right? Even Mark's editorial comment that said Peter didn't know what to say, is, it, it lends itself like we're thinking like this, is, this, isn't, this isn't good what he said, but the Jews had held on to a hope that God would one day come and tabernacle again with them like he did in Exodus. And this is actually written in the apocryphal writings. It's written in, in the historic writings of Josephus as well, that there was this thought amongst the Jews that God would come and tabernacle with them again. And so when you see Peter's response here, he's saying, Lord, you know what he's saying? He's saying, this is so awesome. This is so amazing. I don't want it to end. Let me build something that will keep you all here with me. Don't leave. Don't leave. That's the heart of response. That's what Peter is saying. It is a heart for God to, 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 to stay and for things to be exactly the way they are and that they would not change. It's his heart for God to permanently remain with his people. And the lesson that Peter and the disciples will learn in time is that before their very eyes, God's dwelling with humanity is present. No longer is God going to dwell in temples and tabernacles, right? Through the New Testament ministry of the gospel, who becomes the temple? We do. We do. That God is going to reside in us. That he is going to take residence within the hearts of everyone who believes. And the principle that we can take away from Peter's experience is to be motivated by God's glory. If we dwell on it, Listen, if you truly dwell on it and you think about it, just even the transfiguration and you think about Peter and what it's going to be like for you, my friend. I'm talking not for the person to your left or to your right. I'm talking about for you, believer, you, my friend. You will think in such a way that it will stir your hearts to want to do things for the Lord so that you can ascribe glory to his name. Amen? Amen. It will. It will hit you. It will stir our hearts to appraise him, to praise him and to ascribe glory to him through our actions, through our attitude, through our service. What should it motivate us to do exactly? Well, more will be said about this under our, our last principle, but before we need to before we get a chance to move on, it, it'll be good to look at Peter's paralyzing response. That's what I've called it in verse six. It reads for he did not know what to answer. He was, he was stopped in his tracks, and it says, for they all became terrified. It's in the plural. And what this experience must have been like for Peter, James, and John, it's absolutely hard. It's, it's very difficult for us to imagine. Their hearts were both impassioned to do something and gripped with fear where they didn't even know what to say or what to do. And I wanted to feature this because if there's one thing that I'm certain of, it's this, that sinning was the furthest thing from their mind. Sinning against this holy God was the furthest thing from their minds. 
God's holiness, God's glory was overwhelming to the extent that a holy reverence and fear gripped their hearts. And what a principle for us to apply here. And we would also be so motivated by God's glory and radiance so that the darkness of sin and sinful desires would also be removed from his presence from our hearts where he resides. That God's glory would not only motivate us to run to the light, but it would also instill a healthy fear within us that would be paralyzed when it comes to pursuing deeds of darkness. We see an example with the prophet Isaiah, who, when he saw a vision of God's holiness in Isaiah 6, very well-known chapter, very well-known experience, what's Isaiah say? Woe to me. Woe. There's something paralyzing. There's something that stops stops a person in, in their tracks. And I think it can be viewed in a good way. The Apostle John, who was also present for the transfiguration, he would go on later to write in 1 John about God being light. And he also records for us in 1 John 1, 6, when he says that if we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. What was John ultimately saying? Our, our focus and, and our, 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 our consummation with the light should pull us away from pursuing deeds of darkness. That's what he's saying. It would be the Apostle Paul who recorded in Ephesians 5, 8 through 11 that says, and you, you need to hear this. Go, this will be a good application to meditate on this passage later. Ephesians 5, 8 through 11. Um, but, but just to see it at face value, Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, records, for, for you were formerly darkness. Let me help us understand that just in greater detail. He didn't say you were formerly in darkness. What does he say? You were formerly darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Expose them. And that's why when we go to the light, it exposes the deeds of darkness. When we, when we are consumed with the light, as we should be, that is what, that, that, it, it keeps those things off the radar because we see the incredible contrast. And though the Apostle Paul wasn't a witness to the transfiguration, those familiar with his conversion experience know in Acts 9-3, when he was on the road to Damascus, that something appeared, and this is what it says, that it was like a flash of lightning that made him fall to the ground. And it was a radiance and a glory that was so bright that it made him to the ground. And later in his epistles, he'll describe what, what, what that image and, and what that was like. But here's a, here's a Bible trivia question for you. What do Peter, James, and John and the Apostle Paul all have in common? 
Peter, James, John, Paul, all four of those men saw the radiance and the glory and witnessed the spectacular awesomeness of God's glory, and they wrote 99% of the New Testament epistles that instruct believers how to walk in the light and not in darkness. No question. No question. Why would God choose the authors that he was going to choose? Because they had seen it. Because they had witnessed it. Because they got a glimpse of it. And that would never leave them. That would never leave them. Of course, they were superintended by the Holy Spirit to write, but there's no question that the glimpse that all four of those men saw. Well, God's glory should have a practical effect on our spiritual lives. And if you look down at the sermon reflection questions down on the bottom of your bulletin, I just put these together for you. And again, for my own heart too, as as um, I look to the Lord for light and continue to repent of my sin and forsake the deeds of darkness, in what ways can God's glory lead you to have a proactive response this week? How might it lead you to have a paralyzing response? Well, this sets us up for our third and final principle. We're looking at three principles from the Lord's transfiguration so that you see Christ more clearly and live passionately for his glory. Number one, be prepared for God's glory. Number two, be motivated by God's glory. Number three, be obedient for God's glory. And the climactic point of the transfiguration takes place in verses 7 and 8. You want to be captivated by God's glory and his awesome nature? Just consider this fact, how he spared the lives of the disciples in the same way that he did for Moses on Mount Sinai when he allowed a cloud to form that overshadowed them, that protected them. That's why the scripture teaches us that no man has ever seen God and lived in his entirety. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It would be too much. It would be too consuming. But one day we shall behold his presence. Look at verse 7. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Our father's great exhortation couldn't be more clear. And first the father shares, this is my beloved son. James Edwards shares this insight. This pronouncement recalls the declaration of Jesus as the son of God at his baptism and carries the full content of meaning that we noted at Mark 1.11. At the baptism, however, the declaration was directed to Jesus. You are my beloved son as a confirmation of his divine sonship. Here it reveals his sonship to the disciples. This is my beloved son. As well as the command to listen to him is thus a divine revelation to the disciples. This declaration from heaven sets Jesus apart from Moses and Elijah and designates him uniquely as God's son. End quote. And the Father's great exhortation is completed when he gives a command to the disciples that says, listen to him. This is akuo in the Greek. It's from where we get our English word acoustic. And I think that we all in our experience understand that there can be distinctions between hearing and listening. And any parent of teenagers will let you know that there are some times when they are 
hearing you and sometimes when they're listening to you. Like when you're giving them instructions on a Saturday afternoon about cleaning out in the yard and they're, you know, got Xbox controller in their hand and uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, you're going to go do this and you got to go do that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You want, I, I can speak of that because I was that kid, okay? I was the uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. They hear noise. They hear the sound of, their vo- of your voice as a parent. But they're not engaged. They're not making eye contact with you. They're not, they're not listening. They're not tracking and following with what you're saying. And this is what the type of listening that our Father is commending right here. And I think James 1.22 can function and, and validate this biblical distinction when it says, but prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers, right? You can hear the word, right? But if you engage, if you're actively listening, it will summon you to action. This is what God was asking of them. He was commanding all three disciples to actively listen and apply the words of Jesus. And they would need the Lord's guidance to understand the Father's will for the suffering Messiah. And the timing of this statement is critical. Jesus, and we're approaching this, churches, we're going through the Gospel of Mark. He's on his way to the cross. He's, he's within a year's time frame. And, and in his final year of discipleship with these men, And he's going to be headed to Jerusalem to encounter his fate on the cross according to the Father's predetermined plan. And before Jesus goes to the cross, he's going to spend some time. This is the first instance in Mark where he actually talks and speaks of his death, right? And it's going to happen. We're going to see it happen a couple more times. And we see it happen in the the Gospels to the point where it finally hits him. And they know he's going to die. And we can recall that chapter in John 14 where he's trying to comfort the disciples and, and, and saying, do not let your heart be troubled. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. Now think about this. Think about how instrumental the transfiguration was taking place before Jesus had this conversation. And we're going to learn later in in the passage, right? These guys aren't permitted to talk about this until after the Son of Man has risen, right? But God's got all his bases covered. He knows the the, the, the fragile nature of our faith. And then... That after he was risen, that Peter, James, and John were going to be able to say, you guys, we saw him in his glory. He took us to where we're going. He allowed us to see a glimpse of it. We saw Moses. (laughs) We saw Elijah. And you know all the disciples. I imagine the first question that they're going to ask, why didn't you tell us? Come on, man, why didn't you tell us? Well, the Lord asked us not to tell you until after his resurrection. And you know what's really encouraging? Because scripture records disobedience. You know, we see it with David and David's disobedience. It records it. Nowhere in scripture do we find a record that, you know, any of the disciples, Peter, James, or John, those three, letting the cat out of the bag too early. They were obedient 
for God's glory. And that's pretty amazing considering what took place, if you think about it. I, I don't know if I would have, you know, the Lord knows the heart of man and who can retain information and who can't. And I don't know if I would have been able to keep that one to myself. I guess they had each other to talk to. And maybe that's a reason why he allowed more than one to go. The, the inner circle, right, of his closest disciples, that they would be able to be able to have each other to, to share that. Pretty amazing. Yet I believe there was something that helped their obedience that blessed them in even greater measure that we see in our last verse and final sub-point, our, savior, our Savior's faithful presence. And this is, sometimes God writes the endings of the sermon, as he does in this case. Look at the concluding verse of the transfiguration. Verse 8 says, All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Elijah and Moses, the great figures of the Old Testament, vanished. In relation to Jesus, they had no permanent standing. Only Jesus remains. And rather than escaping, going on with the, the Heavenly Father into glory, the Lord Jesus Christ continues the journey, continues the climb up the mountain that is ultimately going to end with him going to the cross and embracing it on our behalf. Jesus never leaves his disciples. It was Corey Tenboom who wrote the words from a Jewish concentration camp. But you never know, Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all that you have. At the beginning of the service, I compared the experience of discipleship much like climbing a mountain, because it is. And those who have done it physically know that it isn't easy. It isn't easy for us spiritually. It takes hard work to get there, but we know this, and this is the point that God allows us to see that we can celebrate, that when we get to the summit, when we reach the peak, and we get to see the view. You know what you're going to say? It was worth it. It was worth it in every single way. And I believe that if the Lord Jesus Christ were here right now, if he would give you an exhortation so that you would carry on in fulfillment of your ministry for the number of days that you have left until he comes and, and, and raptures the church, you know what I believe he would share? I believe that he would share the principles that we've seen expanded upon in his word today. That you would be prepared for God's glory. And that you would make sure that others are prepared for God's glory. That you would be motivated by God's glory. That you would have a desire to pursue the light and to be paralyzed from your pursuit of the deeds of darkness. And lastly, that you would be obedient for the God's glory, that he would say, continue to press on in the words that my father said. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to his word. And he would end with something like this. Soon and very soon, where I am, you shall soon also be. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we bow our heads thanking you for uh, a very full passage, a very full study, and we commend our lives to you. We commit our works to you. Help us to breathe in deeply 
the, the, the principles that we've um, focused on this morning. May they continue to be absorbed into our thinking. Help us to know that you want us and it's your desire to make it our ambition to be pleasing to you. And you want us to ascribe glory back to you. I pray that you would help us to reflect your glory. And that we would be in many ways like mirrors, shining the light of your grace and truth back up to you. And when our mirrors get dirty, spotty, and stained, and we could come to you for cleansing so that we could again reflect even in a greater way. And I pray that that's every heart here, my own heart, even after a week of sin and selfishness and pride and foolishness, strife, in my own heart, that you allow us to be renewed yet again. Great are you, Lord. You are so worthy to receive all of our praise. We thank you again for this time to celebrate these truths. Would you capture our hearts all week with them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.